exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. That's what Kung Fu Podcast is all about. And I'm your host, T.W. Smith. Thank you so much for joining me today in an episode where we're going to be taking a look at the Bubishi and, and eventually making its way back to its Chinese roots. I'd like to tell you a little bit about what was the catalyst for this particular podcast. It began when Bob Speed and I took off here from Raleigh, North Carolina to go up to see Ian Abernathy at the fantastic seminar up there in Franklin, North Carolina. As part of that martial arts weekend seminar, we went through some applications for both the Bubishi and the Hanchi Kata. And that's right, it was the first time I had ever seen or gone through the Hanchi Kata, and everybody made it through safe and sound. It wasn't the first time that I had seen or worked with a few of the illustrations, but it was the first time I had ever seen it all put together or worked with it, formerly known as the Bubishi. When we were all done, we had a great time, and on the way back home, Bob and I were coming down the mountain, and it led to the question, why don't more Chinese martial artists practice using these illustrations or using this document known as the Bubishi? Well, that question stimulated some research, and Bob got to watch me get into my little uh, tunnel there and start digging into stuff. But by the time I was done, it probably took me a good week or so to collect all the information that I could find in various formats regarding this very important collection of texts known as the Bubishi, or in Chinese, Wu Beiji. This podcast is going to be built around essays from Ben Juckins, Ian Abernathy, a couple of excerpts from Jesse Encamp, and of course, a large part of the references are going to be of Patrick McCarthy's book, The Bubishi. I want to let you know that I'm going to be in Dallas, North Carolina, the weekend of November the 3rd, as part of the Shirite Bujitsu Kai Martial Arts Science in Application Symposium. It is a fantastic seminar put together by Mr. Troy Price just right outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're anywhere in the region, I would really encourage you to get out there and visit. If you want to find out more, go to kungfupodcast.com forward slash shurite. Also, I put together a William E. Fairbairn Extra, 42 minutes of audio. It picks up where William E. Fairbairn leaves the Shanghai Municipal Police. If you'd like to consider getting that content, plus the original two podcasts that I edited, cleaned up, and put in a consolidated format, all available for you, you can go to kungfupodcast.com forward slash Fairbairn and be taken right to the page. You'll be able to find the references to this podcast by going to kungfupodcast.com forward slash Bubishi. All right, so if you're ready to go, I'm ready to go. Let's get started with the Bubishi and taking it back to its Chinese roots. Regardless of your martial arts style, there's always those great old movies, such as the Ninja in the Deadly Trap, where during the Ming Dynasty, the Japanese defense minister dispatches a deadly group of ninja assassins to steal away the invaluable secret manual of fighting skills used by Chinese warriors. Or the other movie, The Secret Message, where a young boy holds the secret to the coveted kung fu manual, and a martial arts clan leader hunts mercilessly for the book. 
blind but very able, the defender saves the boy, and he defeats the aggressors, preventing the manual from falling into the enemy's hands. Well, if you have this manual, this secret manual of the past masters, what are you going to find within its pages? It must possess all the great keys to combat. It must also share with you the profound ethical lessons and occasionally drawing on ancient philosophical teachings. This book would contain the sort of knowledge that would be used to heal as well as to harm because that is a well-established aspect of the modern mental image of the Asian martial arts. It may, it may even suggest the role of energy in the combative martial arts. Well, we know that this ancient collection of texts must be too profound to be by just any one mere human being. But rather, it's a collection of well-received texts from throughout the many, many years of the past. And once we possess it, our martial arts journey takes a whole new path. Now, I bet if you took a moment and just looked around, you might have a version of one of these books. It's titled, The Bubishi, A Classical Manual of Combat. There are a few versions of it, and the latest one, the one we're going to be mostly talking about here, is dated in the summer of 2016. Ben writes that even though it is one of the most commonly owned martial arts manuals and pretty easy to get, even the local Barnes & Nobles will keep a copy of it, it also appears to be one of the less frequently read and discussed examples of the genre. And that is especially true within the Chinese martial arts circles. Saying that, a few words of introduction may be necessary for those who are not familiar with the manuscript tradition generally referred to as the Bubishi. The Bubishi is a Japanese romanization of the Chinese title Wubeiji. And that title is not referring to the venerable Ming-era military encyclopedia compiled by Mao Yanyi. Rather, the version that we're referring to is a term that in the 1930s came to be retrospectively applied to a diverse manuscript tradition preserved in Okinawa hand combat circles. Yet, the exact nature of these books is quite difficult to pin down. These collection of untitled works found in Okinawa were essentially collections of texts dealing with a range of topics including medicine, martial philosophy, and unarmed fighting techniques. Andreas Quast, someone who you're going to hear about here shortly in this podcast, suggests that it is quite significant that the Bubishi contains no discussion of weapon techniques. You're also going to want to know that no surviving editions include a title page, a preface, or statement of authorship. In that sense, they are even more mysterious than the mysterious Tai Chi classics. They most likely date to the exact same time period and may have even at least been partially a product of similar social forces. While there is some overlap in critical material, various lineages of Bubishi transmission 
included different numbers of articles organized in a wide variety of ways. While clearly it is a compiled work with multiple authors and or editors, the Bubishi was not so much a cohesive edited volume as much as it was an ongoing research file. Or, as has several people have said, it looks a lot like a classroom notebook, like something as the instructor was just passing this information to you, you were just trying to get down the meat of it so that you wouldn't forget it later. Well, while Japanese authors have been discussing this manuscript tradition since the pre-World War II period, in the current era, it is best known to English-speaking audience throughout the efforts of Patrick McCarthy, who has published multiple editions of translation and commentary. McCarthy once characterized Bubishi as the Bible of Karate, and that symbolic resemblance is certainly recognizable. Ben writes, quote, While very little in this work outwardly resembles modern karate practice, Many of the art's pioneers drew inspirations from his pages. The Bubishi functioned as a textual witness, linking what became a modern martial art to an idolized and supposedly pure past tradition. Thus far, karateka have dominated the discussion of this manuscript in the West. And the plan during this particular podcast is to demonstrate that that might be just half of the story. When I was trying to decide how was I going to put all this information together and how was I going to tell a story about the Bubishi, I decided to follow Army Land Navigation, where basically you have to find your location on a map and determine a path through a technique called resection. Resection is the method of locating your position on a map by determining on the grid at least two well-defined locations that can be pinpointed on the map. Before you decide that you're going to go anywhere, you have to take the time to determine in at least close proximity exactly where you are. So with that metaphorical example, let's see if we can look for fixed and semi-fixed points so that we can find out where we are on this large martial arts timetable map. Well, we've already identified one fixed point, and we know that there is another document titled the Wubeiji, and it was translated into Japanese as the Bubishi. That document was compiled in the early 1600s and has 10,405 pages in over 200 volumes. We are not talking about that book. We also know that we have some sketchy dates and some other variables that are fairly opaque. And we're going to take a few minutes and see if we can tidy that up a little bit. Ben writes that ever since the first modern Japanese translation of these texts were released in the middle of the 1930s, the Bubishi has been overwhelmingly seen as the key to understanding karate's Okinawan prehistory. Patrick McCarthy's English language version carries the same tune, hitting on almost every one of the same notes. And that is part of the reason why that book was ever marketed as the Bible of Karate. Just as a side note, I believe that the reference to the Bible of Karate was actually in the very first edition of the book. Since that time, it's been removed, but a lot more rich detail has been added. 
for students of karate. The Bubishi is interesting because it is unique within the arts historical landscape. However, things are a little different for the Chinese martial studies community. We should be asking ourselves, how can we get more out of this text precisely because it's not totally unique? Rather, it is the most easily accessible example of a genre of manuscripts that, while not all that rare, have yet to elicit the same scholarly attention that they deserve. And part of the reason for this podcast and Ben Judkins' work that you can always find at kungfupodcast.com forward slash Ben is to correct this lack of scholarly attention. And it's going to begin with the review of Tuttle's 2016 edition of Patrick McCarthy's book titled The Bubishi, which I identified as fixed point number two. There's been a lack of scholard slash forensic attention given to this collection of texts. So I think of this fixed point as kind of an unknown for right now because we don't know what it's going to unearth. But we do know in the area where the shovel is going to be digging. During this process, we're going to be trying to answer at least three different questions. First, how has the Bubishi impacted the practice of the martial arts, both at the first time of its appearance in the 1930s and in the subsequent decades. Second, what does the Bubishi and Tuttle's most recent edition suggest about the social work done by discussions of tradition within the modern martial arts landscape? And third, is what are we going to learn about Chinese martial arts during this exercise? So no matter which field of martial arts you practice in, there's a very good chance that we're going to bring out some treasures for any student of martial arts studies. Mr. Jesse Enkamp has several posts on his website, Karate by Jesse, regarding Okinawan karate, and he also has a really good story about his first copy of the Bubishi and how those pages became tattered and worn from him using it so much. Now, Jesse's giving me permission to share this with you, and here's what he had to say. Quote, Held by the old masters as karate's most sacred treasure, the Bubishi was an essential text in Okinawa, the birthplace of karate, directly influencing the formation of what we today refer to as karate-do, the way of the empty hand. He continues, Now some people might argue that an old document such as the Bubishi couldn't possibly hold relevance in today's world where the question of whether something works in the cage against a trained MMA fighter or not seems to be the main measure of determining martial arts worth. But I beg to differ. End quote. Jesse closes with stating how important the use of this document is in revisiting your martial arts and that the appropriate use of this text can bring you a great number of dividends. Agent of Action and friend of the program, Mr. Ian Abernathy, also brings up some good points in his forum post titled as a question, The Bubishi, Karate's Most Important Text. During that post, Ian addresses several points that are present in the Bubishi and how several martial arts styles could be using the teachings and in some cases are leaving out important components of it. For example, Many styles are selective teachers of a style 
will leave out grappling. Other styles will emphasize the grappling and pretty much eliminate the striking. Other times, techniques and tactics are just missed or totally left out. Ian writes, quote, The Bubishi also contains advice and instruction on the use of some of the more unpleasant, although undeniably effective, fighting methods. These methods include hair pulling, seizing the testicles, headbutting, biting, etc. Interestingly, the concept of mentally disarming an opponent prior to preemptive striking, which is actually emphasized by today's self-protection experts, is referred to in the Bubishi, although I overlooked it at first. A number of years ago, I was lucky enough to train under Jeff Thompson on a number of the courses he ran in both Newcastle and Carlisle. It was on these courses that I was introduced to Jeff's methods of preemptively striking an assailant, which has been part of my practice ever since. A little while later, I was reading the Bubishi when one particular line now made a whole lot more sense. Often it is essential to see the attacker in order to make an opening. When the circumstances dictate the meeting, be prepared to feign intoxication, weakness, or cowardice, and then when he lets his guard down, strike immediately." There are two well-respected men in the world of martial arts and some of their thoughts regarding the Bubishi. Ben writes, most likely brought to Okinawa sometime during the 19th or early 20th century, the Bubishi appears to have been a manuscript tradition in which a number of separate, often unrelated articles were compiled, copied, and passed on. These remained in an unbound state until the 20th century. As such, the order and exact number of articles varies between the textual lineages. But there is enough overlap to suggest the existence of an identifiable tradition. This collection was initially passed on without either a formal title or the sort of preface that often accompanied Chinese martial arts manuals. And that is both an unfortunate and critical fact to bear in mind. It is unfortunate in that the prefaces of such manuals are rich sources of data that describe the social world that a text sought to situate itself within. It is important in that this textual tradition makes no self-conscious claim to editorship, individual authorship, title, or even date. It seems unlikely that the term Bubishi came to be applied to these texts until later in the 20th century, possibly the 1930s, according to the detailed introductory article by Andreas Quast. And you'll be able to find a link to his website in your show notes. While Quast traces the suggestions of a textual tradition existing in Okinawa back to the 1880s at the latest, it is worth remembering that the oldest hand-copied Bubishi manuscripts date to 1930. This is only a few years prior to the first translations of the text appearing for sale in Japan in the middle of the 1930s. To paraphrase Kung Fu Podcast Agent of Action, Dr. Paul Bowman, we are once again confronted with a book which is treated as ancient, yet upon closer inspection, turns out not to even be that old. So a quick review of where I have us some fixed points. 
We are discussing Bubishi II, not the 17th century version of the Wubeiji. Next fixed point, that there's been a lack of scientific methodology, that forensic style of approach to the document that we all hold in such high regard. Fixed point number three, at this point we see that the oldest copy that's around is in 1930, once in Okinawa, this collection of papers was initially passed around unbound without a formal title or the same sort of structure normally found in the Chinese martial arts manuals. I like the descriptions. It's very much like my son's classroom notes. And then fixed point number five, even with the bubishi in hand, practitioners may not fully gain because of one of many reasons, just as Ian points out in his post. Well, Ben writes, a possible origin in the last two decades of the 19th century is suggestive as it would make these texts roughly contemporaneous to the Tai Chi classics. Another edited collection, which was beginning to enter into circulation at the same time period. These years are a critical period for those of us wishing to better understand the evolution of the modern Chinese martial arts, which we will get more into as we go along once we have a better fix on where we are. The 2016 version of the McCarthy's Bubishi Ben describes as being stable in size and that the length of the various modern editions that are now in circulation grow with age. Tuttle's current offering comes in at 319 pages, up from the comparatively svelte 255 pages of the 2008 edition. The additional material includes new introductory prefaces and essays by Patrick McCarthy, Jesse Encamp, Cesar Perwaski, Evan Pantasi, Joe Swift, and Andreas Quast. If you buy the book, you can be rest assured that the 19th century's original lack of any type of descriptive front matter has been more than compensated for with the modern prefaces and testimonials. Some of the newer material included in the 2016 volume was very interesting. McCarthy's essay, No Time Like the Past, provided a series of reflection on his involvement with the Bubishi over the decades. Anyone looking to test Gary Krug's theory on the stages of the Western appropriation of Okinawan karate could do worse than starting with this autobiographical essay. For right now, let's put a bookmark in Ben's essay. The thesis that Ben just referred to, written by Mr. Gary Krug, is titled, At the Feet of the Master, Three Stages in the Appropriation of Okinawan Karate into Anglo-American Culture, and it was first published in 2001. The abstract reads, quote, First discovered by Anglo-Americans following the Second World War, karate has undergone a series of changes in the way in which it is presented and taught in the United States and Australia. In the 1990s, the publication of Key Secrets, the establishment of a large body of historical information, the rapidly growing acceptance of traditional Chinese medicine, acupuncture, and the establishment of second and third generation dojos and instructors in Euro-American cultures have contributed to the demystification of karate and a lessening need for attachments to the people and culture of Okinawa. With these new representations of karate, 
the art is being remade as a set of Western knowledge and practices. These changes in the representation of karate trace a trajectory that transforms the pragmatic and spiritual characteristics of karate first into a marker of Asianness, then into a myth of origins, and finally into a set of historical and semi-scientific practices." End quote. That particular thesis has served as a reference to other research, such as the Journal of Contemporary Anthropology research article titled, The Japanization of Karate, Placing an Intangible Cultural Practice, written by Noah Johnson, who is a Ph.D. candidate at the Department of Anthropology, University of Iowa City, Iowa. As part of your support of Kung Fu Podcast, I've put that essay for you for free in the download section when you sign in. That thesis has also been referenced in broader scholarly research, such as the 107-page document titled Translanguaging and Translation, Translating Culture in Multilingual Karate Clubs in London. That paper, which was part of Arts and Humanities Research Council's work, referenced Krug 12 times in their essay. And starting on page 8, they write, quote, Although karate is often attributed in the public discourse in the West as originating from Okinawa, an island of the Ryukyu Islands to the south of the Japanese main island, karate from its outset was not merely the product of one nation or one culture, but rather the outcome of interactions in East Asia between groups sharing frequent and prolonged contact since the 14th century. The intense interactions and exchanges were a result of the geographical uniqueness of Okinawa. Located close to two major civilizations, Japan and China, the island was sometimes used as a trade center or a stopover while being subject to military invasion or political dominations by its neighbors. In Krug's review of the historical trajectories of karate, he identified several events that contributed to the development of karate, end quote. They go on to write about other aspects of the development of karate and Okinawa's position and its uh, interactions with other cultures, but that's not so much the part of this particular episode that we want to get into. It's just I wanted to make sure that when you hear Ben reference to this essay, The Three Stages of the Appropriation of Okinawa Karate by Gary Krug, that you had a general idea about what that was talking about. One of the things that I've learned when I'm reading a lot of these research documents is because these folks have uh, pretty much shared or understand these different levels of documents that are out there, they will make a reference kind of in passing on something. And for many of us, we may not have seen that document yet. And that was just the case for me, for example, there. I'd never heard of the document at the feet of the master. So we're going to put a bookmark in it right here because when we come back, we're going to be picking up on the place of Andreas Quast's concluding essay titled The Creation and the Creator. And trust me, it's going to be a great place to pick up in part two. Exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. Thank you so much for joining me today in the episode where we began taking a strong, long look at the Bubishi and returning it back to its Chinese roots.
and the metaphorical design and the message that I wanted to try to get out through this particular set of series of research papers and essays. I believe that you're going to find it very interesting, and I'm really excited about being back and sharing things with you. I look forward to hearing from you, and I really mean that. Whether that's through iTunes or send me an email, I love to hear from you. And I'm also happy that I'm just about totally over this cold. Uh, My voice sounded like just something terrible. I've redone this podcast twice now, and I mean couple of several hours worth of work actually just threw it away and started over so I could do a good job with it. Don't forget about the seminar that's coming up on the first weekend of November 2017 just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. And if you want to find out more about it, kungfupodcast.com forward slash shurite. And that if you'd like to support this program in any shape, form, or fashion, whatever way works for you, which includes just using our links, which is no cost to you, you can go to kungfupodcast.com forward slash support and find a number of different things that you could help me make this program grow and continue to be better for the years to come. Take care, and I'll be talking with you again real soon.